This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's talk about what's happening here in town with our court system. With the sudden passing of uh, justice and the reassignment of another for wearing the uh, Made America Great Again hat, we all know all about that controversy, uh, an already strained court system in the city is even more strained right now. And there's the possibility that a number of cases could just get tossed out. That's not a good thing. That's not how the system is supposed to work. Let's uh, bring Jeff Manishin into the discussion. Criminal lawyer with Ross and McBride here in town. Of course, former Crown attorney as well. And always a welcome guest here on the Bill Keller Show. Good morning, Jeff. How are you today? Great, Bill. How are you? Good. Uh, you know these numbers already. but And I know in the past you and I have talked about the system on a, on a province-wide basis right now. But maybe you could uh, comment about what is happening here in Hamilton right now. Sure. But I should say, Bill, in terms of the numbers, no, I, I uh, don't keep track of that sort of thing. I, it's a bigger picture for me, and what I'll look at is to hear about whether there have been any cases thrown out in Hamilton because of an individual's right to be tried within a reasonable period of time having been infringed. And I have to tell you, it's very rare. It's very rare. All right, let's put this in context for those who uh, may not know as much about this as, as some that, that maybe have had dealings with this. And this is really uh, this this pressure to, to get things done in an expeditious manner is based on something they call the Jordan decision. Let's talk about that. Sure. We'll even go farther back in time to okay, than sure. that, Bill. The origin of it is this. Under Section 11B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, everybody has the right to be tried within a reasonable period of time. And under Section 24.1 of the Charter, if it's found that somebody's rights are infringed or denied, then the court can fashion such remedy as it considers to be just and appropriate in the circumstances. And if we went back 25, 30 years... How is that interpreted? If you had cases that took too long to get to trial, courts imposed a stay of proceedings, halt of the proceedings. And you might remember many years back a case called Askov. Askov was a case out of Brampton where the Supreme Court of Canada ultimately said that for a standard kind of case, it's not unusually complex or long, it shouldn't take more than eight to ten months to get to trial. So you had cases that took a year to get to trial that were being thrown out basically across the board, and there was a huge hue and cry. And over time, the court revised that decision and revised the test to determine when somebody's right to be tried within a reasonable period of time had infringed or denied. Let me ask you, just on that point, uh, that, that initial ruling of 8 to 10 months to, uh, is a reasonable, quote-unquote, reasonable time. Uh, from your experience, it was it reasonable? It, it should have been. Our problem was this in, in Brampton, which was an enormously overburdened jurisdiction. You had cases that were dragging on for years. And, yeah, I don't think, you know, for a standard type of case, let's take an assault case or a drinking and driving case. From the time of arrest till trial, eight to ten months should be plenty. Um, because you have a certain period of time where the individual needs to be able to get a lawyer, the lawyer needs to get disclosure. But, I mean, to, to say that if you had a case that was going to take a couple of hours, we're set to go to, to set a date for trial, from that point on, six months should be plenty. You know, you don't. It's a stress for somebody to have to live with the charge hanging over their head, and as well, society likes to be able to see things resolved in an efficient kind of way. But of course, as we've all we have talked in the past, Bill, the issue of resources, whether it's courthouse facility, whether it's crowns, whether it's police doing the things they need to do to get all the reports in and disclosure out via the crowns office, whether it's court resources, sufficient judges, those are all things that constrain the system and did significantly in Brampton. But to your point, though. 
Uh, you know, you say something simple, and, and, I, and I guess there's no such thing as a really simple, but maybe less complex like a drinking and driving charge as opposed to something like an assault or, or a murder or attempted murder cause. Are, are they stale, uh, no matter what it is, are they measured by the same metric? In other words, the same pressure is applied to them? Well, back uh, with the ask of decisions, certainly for longer cases, you know, more complex cases, and it was considered to have some element of flexibility. I should say, too, by the way, Bill, assault cases can be fairly straightforward. You may only have two witnesses. Drinking and driving cases get into all kinds of complex technical issues with respect to the charter. They actually can take considerably longer. So anyway, let's go back in our history lesson. So that was ASCOV, and then it was backed off, and there was a whole complex series of steps that then had to be considered in a case called Moran, where they took a, take a look at how much was considered to be neutral intake time that time for the individual to get a lawyer, that time for the lawyer to be able to get up to speed on the case and get the disclosure, and so forth. Um, in addition, they take a look at what were the restrictions on the individual's liberty, what was the prejudice he or she suffered as a result of a case being around for a long period of time. Um, they will take a look at the inherent time requirements in the case, how much would be figured that it should take. There were a whole series of different steps, and, and you'd have to sort of add in what's our total amount of time and then reduce certain time if the defense waived delay or didn't push for an early trial date, or bail conditions if the defense didn't apply to have those potentially uh, uh, modified. Or what was the stage where the defense looked we're ready to go to trial, and when would the defense have been ready to go to trial? So think of it as a whole bunch of math in and then reduce things out. And it was a complicated process, but it still led to cases being thrown out once you went through all that math. When when there are delays like that, and, and well, remand is a word we hear from time to time, or delays, I guess, maybe a more appropriate. Remand is good. Remand or adjournment. Yeah. Uh, is is it the defense that more often than not is responsible for those uh, those those pushbacks, or is is it the crown, or is it evenly divided? What's what's uh, what do the numbers look like? You have some of each. Uh, under some circumstances, the defense might say, "Look, we aren't ready to go. We haven't had a chance to review the disclosure. We haven't had a chance to meet with our client. There's further information we want to find out." Sometimes it's on the fault of the Crown, some material that should have been included at an earlier stage in terms of disclosure. You've got to do multiple requests to be able to get it. Take, for example, a case where there might be, say, security camera video footage, and it may take a while to get it. Um, sometimes in terms of getting witness statements. I mean, there, there's a host of different reasons that seem to be involved. Search warrant information, it's the document that the police put before a justice to get to be able to do a, to get a search warrant. That's critical to be able to decide how to defend a case. And sometimes, those, frequently, those things are sealed under court order. And so to get it unsealed, the Crown needs to then review it and determine what stuff needs to be edited out that might disclose the identity of an informant. Okay, but that stuff has taken a long while to be able to get out to you. Um, so, so it does happen that there are delays that occur on both sides. Sometimes the defense, I will candidly say, aren't in a big rush to push a case on for trial. Uh, but on the other hand, if you have somebody who may be in custody, you know, they may want to get their trial on quicker and they may push it. All right, so those are some of the pressures, among many, I'm sure, that, that are, are having an impact on, on, on the judicial process right now. But I, I don't know if there's anything galls the average person, Jeff, more than when they hear about somebody's uh, case that just gets tossed out by some judge, and this is these. I'm paraphrasing some of the stuff I hear from people uh, uh, as their reaction to this. Some judges just thought, well, it's taking too long, so you walk out the door. Well, they might have been guilty, they might have been innocent, and it doesn't much matter. It has a timing element. But how, how were those decisions arrived at? Well, that actually lets, get, let it, lets us get caught up to the Jordan case, 
Okay, because that's what you were you're asking. But now okay. it's a decision that the Supreme Court of Canada uh, came out with uh, last year. And basically the court said, look, all this business of adding in and removing out and, and waiver and prejudice and all that, you know what, it shouldn't take that long. We're going to basically set down some presumptive numbers. And we're going to say 18 months start to finish. From the time the day the guy's arrested till the trial's finished shouldn't take longer than 18 months for a case to be heard at the Ontario Court of Justice. And if a case is going to be heard in Superior Court, fine, 30 months start to finish. So 30 months, two and a half years. Okay? That's, that's it. And beyond that, the Crown is really going to have to explain, justify why the case shouldn't be thrown out. And less than that, the defense is really going to have to do some dancing to explain why the case should not be uh, continuing. So that was the case that came out, and I, I, there are some there's some criticisms of the decision, Bill, because from what I understand, the Supreme Court didn't say to the counsel who were arguing the case, look, give us the stats in your area, give us research, give us data to be able to assist us in coming up with presumptive numbers. They just came up with it pretty much on their own. And so then the systems had to deal with it. Well, you may have jurisdictions, and I know this is a case from what I've read in the papers, and some places out west, for example, and in Quebec, well, there, there have been delays in getting judges appointed. And so you've got long delays, three and four and five years, for cases to, be get, to get to trial. And so it's led to murder cases being thrown out because it's simply taken too long. And although the Jordan case allows for some transition, it's still way too long. So that's what we currently are dealing with as a state of the law. I, you know, I, I shake my head when I hear because you're not the first person that's told me that, that sometimes there's a delay in appointing judges. Uh, now, this may be more of a political answer than it is a, a legal one, Jeff, but I know there is no shortage of people applying for those positions right now. Why does it take so long? That's a question to ask the Liberal ju- the Justice Minister next time you have her on the program, or the Provincial Attorney General next time you have him or whoever it may be at a given time on the program. Because uh, there, there is a, there's an appointment process. I know at the Ontario Court of Justice, there's a whole series of steps that they go through, ranging from getting the applications and reviewing the re- references, conducting interviews uh, with a, a sort of committee that determine who may or may not be suitable, coming out of that and making inquiries amongst the profession to be able to find out more about the potential candidate, and then giving a, maybe the top two or three to the Attorney General, letting the Attorney General decide. That's at the Ontario Court. At the federal system... It's nowhere near as structured. So in terms of what they need to do, they get input of organizations like the Canadian Bar Association, and they get references and so forth. I don't know what, why it should take that long. You're quite right, Bill. There are loads of people who apply. And if you've got this desperate need, I mean, you know, I may well be a fan of the Liberal government in a lot of respects, but they took a long while to fill judicial appointments. And so now, now those chickens start to come home to roost. And then in the last couple of years, you've had cases that have been thrown out well, there are issues about insufficient resources, so it still is a problem. Now, let's go back for a sec. So now, remember I said to you, eight to ten months, get yeah, the trial. Yeah. And so forth. Well, now, Bill, at the Ontario Court of Justice level, they got 18 months to get the case done. Should be loads of time, right? Should be, but let's look at the Hamilton situation, as, as Susan Claremont reported in The Spectator today. Heavy caseload, and that's not unusual. As you mentioned, a lot of jurisdictions have that. You've got one judge who has been reassigned. I don't want to get into the reasons for that. We've talked about that many times on the program. Another unexpected death of, of a justice. Uh, so there's a, there's a shortage here right now. Did, does, does the department, does the minister, does anybody pay close attention and say, well, we've got a concern here? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, 
you know, we're talking about you know paramedics and shortages last week, and they say, well, okay, hopefully somebody some someplace else can come in and fill that void. Sounds to me as if there's no bench strength here. I, literally, I guess I could use that as a legal metaphor here right now. Uh, that if there's a shortage, too bad, so sad. You guys just have to deal with it. I, I don't know if I'd put it quite that uh, that simplistically, Bill. Although, frankly, I have not yet had a chance to read Susan's story, and I'm sure she's done her research in terms of cases that are in jeopardy. Certainly, there have been judges who have been sitting in Hamilton who sit on what's called a per diem basis. So, if you have a judge who's determined that he or she does not want to sit full time any longer, and say they've turned 65, um, you know, and have a certain pension opportunity and so forth, well, then they're sitting just on a hired on a per day basis. And we've had per diem judges assigned to Hamilton over the last few months. So certainly there have been judges here and have been sitting. Where it has been a problem, I know there are some cases that uh, the one judge, Justice Zabel, who was in the midst of hearing trials on, that have potentially had to turn into mistrials because it's taken a while to be able I mean, they've been able to get the case done, and they've had to essentially start all over. Now, let's stop there for a sec. The Supreme Court of Canada in the Jordan case mentions that if you've got a, what's called an exceptional circumstance, a discrete event, and that's D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E. So things like the death of a judge, or in, I would think in a case where a judge was a subject to a, of, a, of a, a conduct hearing, those things are deducted. Any delays attributable to discrete events get deducted from our 18-month sort of time period. So we'd have to see how the evidentiary picture then comes out in court, how much of it is attributable to that. Now, you won't be able to say, gee, we had a judge die, and so Hamilton was under-resourced. And his death bill was a couple of months ago. It, it wasn't like six months ago. It was just within the last couple of months. I don't know where we've got a huge delay that's attributable to his tragic passing, but so far I wouldn't have thought it would have been. And I would say to you, too, you know, in Hamilton bill... We aren't close, in my experience, to needing 18 months to get a, a case tried in the Ontario Court of Justice. It, it still has continued to be rare, even since Jordan, for cases to be thrown out. So I guess what I'd do is I'd prefer to take a bit of a wait and see and see how it all plays out. If it turns out over the next number of months, uh, we start to see some of those, and we start to get a sense of uh, cases taking years far too long. Uh, well, then we can say, gee, it's, it's better position to be able to say we didn't get the additional resources. And it may well be we're going to get there, but frankly, uh, my preference is to wait and see at the moment. Well, if we start seeing, as you mentioned, some of these things we're getting tossed, Ed, then obviously that's a conversation we're going to have to have. Jeff, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Good chatting. You too. Jeff Madison, of course, uh, criminal lawyer now with Ross Pride here in town and, of course, former Crown attorney. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Obviously, a great deal of the focus of the United States right now is what's happening in uh, South Texas and Louisiana because of uh, Harvey and the, the, the flooding and the impacts that are going on. But at the sa- and after negotiations, but at the same time, the North Korean threat is uh, ramping up and it's uh, causing considerable angst, especially in diplomatic circles. And uh, I think probably in a, in a much greater realm now because of what's happened over the last uh, two or three days. The U.S. envoy at an emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council says that North Korea is, to quote her, begging for war. Nikki Haley, the ambassador uh, for the United States, also added that her country's patience is not unlimited. This comes on the news uh, that, of course, of North Korea had tested a hydrogen bomb. North Korea earlier today, actually, suggesting that they had gift packages on the way to the United States. What are we to assume from that? Uh, not the best of, uh, of circumstances, to be sure. And where are we heading on this? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jean-Francois Belanger, 
PhD student in the Department of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal. Jean-Francois, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. Listen, I, I, I'm old enough to remember, although I was just a kid at the time, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the imminent threat of, of nuclear war, and I think it was a real threat, obviously. Uh, it moved from beyond the political into the into the realistic world. And, and are, are we getting to that point now with what's happening in North Korea? Um, I, I think that the analogy to the Cuban Missile Crisis is an interesting one for a few reasons. Uh, first, I don't think we are at the imminent threat stage. Uh, although tensions are high, they haven't been that high since 1994. Um, but they're still, we, we're not to the brink. There's still uh, things that can be done, diplomatic uh, things that can be done uh, that, that could uh, de-escalate the tension that we're seeing right now. The uh, I'll go back to that metaphor. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis analogy, but it's, sure. it's, I think it's very apt to a certain extent. Uh, because we in North America, of course, at the time, uh, probably had the same opinion of Khrushchev that we do now of Kim Jong-un. Uh, this guy is unhinged. He'll do anything. He's, he's, he's crazy. Uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and that's causing a great deal of angst in this country, and I see that happening again. Well, see, see that's the thing, and, and, and it's, interesting, it's interesting to me uh, that we don't have, uh, you know, in hindsight, history told us that Khrushchev was a very strategic individual. He mm-hmm, was very. He war with the United States. The Cuban Missile Crisis started as kind of a, an exchange in kind where the U.S. had a nuclear exchange deal with allies in Europe, especially we were talking about putting missiles in Turkey, uh, and Khrushchev let, let himself be pressure into doing the same thing in Cuba that was discovered, and then we had the whole the whole thing. But uh, it, it was basically uh, trying to, you know, a, a diplomatic back and forth using force. Uh, so in this case, I think Kim Jong-un, um, it's doing us and everybody a great disservice to assume that he's crazy or that the regime is unhinged for two reasons. First, um, we need to, to look at how they've been able to survive for so long being a country that wants to have an independent foreign policy completely different than the United States. And this independent foreign policy is more often than not, and most of the time, uh, going counter to the U.S. But they still they still survived. They were still able to implement a nuclear program. Um, and, and I think one of their success is to sell this idea of irrationality, that you never know what they're going to do next. And with this, they, they, they're able to kind of curb the response of others in the sense that we assume that they're not going to be playing by the same rules as everybody else, so we should probably very carefully if we, were not, we do not want things to escalate. Right? They sold the idea that international rules or international practices or dip- <clears throat> I'm sorry, diplomatic practices are not for them. So as such, everybody's on their toes. But at the end of the day, it's serving them strategically. Well, it certainly is, because, I mean, if you get somebody back on their heels, as, as some people seem to be because of the way that uh, North Korea has responded and acted in the last little while, uh, you do start to be wondering about exactly what's going to happen here. Not unlike, again, what Khrushchev did in 62. That was... Let's not forget on the heels of the uh, the uh, "I will bury you" speech at the United Nations and 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 that kind of rhetoric. But as you say, uh, you know, Khrushchev was dumb like a fox. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he had a strategic plan right now. It was, of course, to hold on to the Eastern European uh, countries and to hold on to the Soviet Union in general. What's 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 Kim Jong Un's long term goal here? Some are suggesting that this is just a a precursor for for them to weaken South Korea because I mean, the ultimate goal is a united Korea that he would lead. Yes, it's been, and, and 
I, I, I don't think, although it's clear that they have that goal, I don't think they're going to reach it. And I think that somewhere down the line, they also understand that it may not be the case. Uh, the immediate goal of this arsenal is survival of the regime. Uh, right? We, we, always, we also, we, we right away have images of Saddam Hussein uh, in 2003, mm-hmm. losing, losing power because he did not have, he, he could not deter U.S. US uh, uh, military attack at, the, at this point. Um, so for, for, for the North Korean regime, they're fully aware of this. The second thing is um, they, do, um, they do know fully well, I, I, let me rephrase that, what they do want at the end of the day is recognition of their nuclear power, that they are a nuclear state now. They would probably want it to be along the line of we accept North Korea as a nuclear power. He's among the circle, and let's start dealing with the guys on equal. That's probably not going to happen. Maybe it's going to be more like yeah, we have to recognize that they are nuclear. Doing that will will make it mostly possible to be able to deal with the arsenal that they have. Trying to see if we can limit the arsenal that they have. And I want to bring back before I forget that that Cuban missile crisis thing because it's important. The missile crisis started, nobody wanted war. Nobody wanted to get into a nuclear war. They just both wanted to be secure and gain an edge. But due to not really misperception in this case, uh, the U.S. felt threatened on its territory and the Soviets felt threatened on their territory. So we ended up with the, the, the blockade and all of this. But interesting within the blockade is that there was still communication both at the political level and at the military level, between the United States and the Soviets, which we don't really have right now in North Korea. Yeah, we, 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 we have know. some back channels, but military to military, not really. And this is excessively important to reduce uncertainty and to make sure that information goes from one to the other. Well, and I think that's part of the concern, though, Jean-Francois. When you look at what's going on right now, uh, you know, for, we can accuse Kim Jong-un of, of, of rhetoric and, and, and trying to inflame the situation. But I'm seeing the same sort of behavior from the Americans at this stage right now, too. I mean, you know, when Trump says on the weekend, OK, we're going to impose serious sanctions against any country that trades with North Korea. Uh, he's got to know that China's going to get upset about that. And they certainly did. And they're going to find that unacceptable. And so are a number of other trading partners right now. So the, the bombast here really seems to be the, the prevalent attitude right now on both sides. Yeah. And, and there, there lies uh, the problem. Uh, President Trump. Uh, has issued threats in the past that he's not follow up on, uh, and it's create it's starting to create an environment where uh, he's not believed when he makes this kind of call, leading others to push even further. And in this case, North Korea. I mean, it's a counterfactual. Would North Korea test as mis- many missiles as they've done in and, and planning to do in this short amount of time uh, if we had not seen kind of empty threats prior? It's debatable. I think we would have seen the nuclear test because they clearly wanted to show that now they have this very advanced nuclear weapon. Um, Mattis, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis kind of threat, uh, is, is, is problematic to me. Uh, uh, coercive diplomacy works when the threat is credible, as in, if you attack this location, I will retaliate without question. However, when you start to threaten uh, another country, if they threaten you, we're starting to go into a realm where credibility diminishes, right? So, and 
All of this can create this huge vacuum of uncertainty where action may be taken that are going to be misinterpreted or North Korea will move ahead. Maybe, have an example, they'll test another intercontinental missile and this time with ordinance on it above uh, Japan and then Japan because the tension is not sure and then decides to shoot it down. Now, from there, it can stay there. Or, and this is assuming that it works. It can stay there, or then we open, we open up another decision three, uh, tree here. What do we do? Do we do nothing? It's always an option. Do we re- retaliate? Do we do more exercise on the peninsula that are more aggressive? Uh, do we put sanctions and so on and so forth? And then if we go for military, um, do we put, where do we push the envelope? Uh, and what happens if North Korea itself threatens because one of these tests is a bit too close to home for, for, for what they like, for example? Well, and there's the problem, is, and there's the rub when you look at this, is, okay, how, for instance, so let's talk about China and their influence in here, uh, because I think a lot of people saw that unanimous Security Council vote a couple of years ago asking for sanctions against North Korea as China being supportive of the U.S. position. I, I, I think that's a little naive. We know that China still trades with North Korea. We know that a lot of the nuclear technology that they used to develop their bombs uh, and their warheads was coming from China. Uh, so China's got their back on this, and if, if there's a, a, an aggressive attack against North Korea by the United States, I, I got the sense, Jean-Francois, that China says, you know what, we will retaliate. Forget about what North Korea does, we would. Well, see, the, the, this is an interesting thing. There's many interesting things in your question. First one is, China stated three weeks ago, and I think they still stand by it, they, they extended their deterrence to North Korea under very specific situations. Mm-hmm. If the U.S. were to strike first, they would... Uh, move in and protect their ally. If North Korea strikes first, they're on their own. And I have a feeling that uh, if it comes to Russia, it's going to be fairly similar. Um, the, uh, the other thing here is this. For China, they're, ge- they're getting frustrated with North Korea as an ally. Uh, they're not as controllable as they used to be as they grow in nuclear power. The issue is, though, they still have a border with each other. Uh, and one of the nightmare scenarios for China is a reunification under South Korea on their border with the nuclear umbrella of the U.S. on top of it. That's problematic for their national security. The U.S. would be directly in their sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't want that. They don't want the humanitarian crisis that the regime collapsing will bring on to them. So, of course, they try to maintain the regime. And more than that, maintaining ties to this regime maintain shows that uh, China is committed to its ally in the region, right? In, in alliance politics, the last thing that you want is to signal to your other allies, when it hits the fan uh, and it goes counter to our interests, we're not going to help you. We're not going to be there for you, despite what you've done for us in the past. It's a problematic message to send. So China right now is towing this very difficult line for the regime, where they don't want to war in the peninsula, because let's be frank, it's a nuclear war we would have on the peninsula at this point. Um, they don't want it to fall under U.S. control, so they want pacifism, they want pacifism to work. Uh, and he also has, from as much as I understand, it, as much I'll say because I'm not a China specialist, uh, he has his own problem at home with the regime and, and big uh, convention and so on coming up. What about the words of, of Nikki Haley, though, the, uh, obviously the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations? And uh, you, you heard this, of course, over the weekend, uh, Jean-Francois. The begging uh, for war? Yeah, begging for war. I mean, that's, the, that's, that's akin to say, telling somebody, hey, you're asking for a punch in the nose just before you punch them in the nose. 
Uh, they didn't say you're begging for more harsh sanctions. They say you're begging for war. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that means they have their finger on the button, but it's it's a rather provocative statement. So, for, for, for listeners and everybody, uh, wars are not something that we don't see coming. The United States, being the hegemon and being the strongest, even being the strongest military power in the world right now, cannot move its military instantly. We would see troop movements. We'll be we'll see bomber activities from Guam. Uh, would see call for reinforcement, would see uh, leaks coming from the White House and elsewhere about the president asking about his power to use force, like we did with George Bush in 2003, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't have this right now. But the, the begging for war comment to me is irresponsible. Mostly, it, I understand why they're doing this, right? When you negotiate with someone, and especially in the public eye, you want to legitimize your position by delegitimizing the position of the other. In this case, if they are begging for war, they are the bad guy, and as such, whichever method that they take will be the good one, and they'll be able to rally support to themselves. However, it's not in North Korea's interest to have a war. They don't want war. They've never wanted it. What they're doing is signaling their capabilities so that they're able to gain some more cloud and increase their deterrent power, and eventually try to force the hand of the international community in recognizing them as a nuclear power. But when uh, you... They're not begging for war. However, they are being extremely belligerent, and their behavior may lead to escalation of tension. But, but you've got the North Korean regime saying, you know, we have special uh, gifts that we're sending over to the United States. Yeah, so you, and then you've got Nikki Haley saying this. I, I guess to you, who's going to be the grown-up here, Jean-Francois, and sit down and say, <laughs> look, let's, let's cut this out and sit down and get this thing settled. I mean, if, if North Korea's <laughs> ultimate goal here is they want to be at the grown-up table when it comes to nuclear discussions because we're a power now, Let's have that discussion and, 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 and cut this rhetoric and just see if we can find some middle ground and diffuse this. I don't see that happening yet. Uh, me neither, because one of the problems is that there's no momentum, for example, to give them some of what they want to bring into the table. And in this case, it's a bit of recognition. Um, and, for example, Canada cannot really do it without angering its number one ally. Yeah. Um, Germany is probably not interested in doing something like this either. Uh, well, especially because Angela Merkel doesn't seem to have a whole lot of respect for Trump anyway, so you know where she's coming from. It seems to be cutting both ways, right? Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I was reading about Putin's message this morning, and it reminded me uncannily on on how he dealt with the, the first phase of the Syrian crisis and the uh, chemical weapon. Um, he came out looking extremely good out of this because the United States were saying this is our red line, line in the sand using chemical weapons it's going is going to bring military intervention uh, the Russians say it was not a good idea we had kind of this language of deterrence over the air and then Putin came in and said you know what I will pressure Assad to give up his, his chemical weapons arsenal and we're going to move towards a diplomatic solution and looking at one, how he's doing this right now I have a feeling that he's kind of angling towards this and then in a few days, weeks, he may be starting to talk the language of maybe we should recognize them and then impose limits on their ballistic missile technology. How many warheads can they have? What type of warhead technology can they go to? How many delivery systems can they have? Um, for the, and that kind of stuff. Uh, 
I have to guess, I think it might be coming from that location. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it, it kind of falls in place with a conversation uh, we've had over the last couple of months right now because of the, the somewhat chaotic political situation in the United States right now, where wherever, wherever there's a power vacuum, somebody moves into it. And whereas the U.S. was always the big dog in international relations, it seems that uh, Trump has kind of seceded that, or ceded that role now, and Putin seems to be filling in that gap, or trying to anyway, and, and be the guy. Uh, that's supposed to to be the influence, the the peacemaker, if that's what it takes, the conciliator, uh, whatever his motives might be. But he seems to be filling that void right now. Well, at least that's what he's been demonstrating in the past couple months. China is also trying to to, to shore itself up uh, as the voice of reason. Uh, in international relations, China is, is probably going to be the subject of many, many dissertations for the, the next 50 years, right? Will they want to rise and become the hegemon? Will they want to surpass the United States? And right now, they seem to be willing to, to say, we're mostly in, in, in the same league, so let's just try to agree uh, to, to maintain this, this international liberal order that has been so good for everybody. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a bizarre turn of events. Isn't it, though? <laughs> it, it's bizarre to me. And on that note, uh, we're just about out of time. Jean-Francois, thank you so much for the time today. It was great to get your assistance on this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Jean-Francois Belanger, Ph.D. student in the Department of Political Science at McGill University. The uh, threat from North Korea continues. Uh, you'd just like to see somebody, somebody be the grown-up here and talk about diplomacy and trying to find some solution to this. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The liberals are uh, meeting in Kelowna, B.C. today to plot strategy, we are told, uh, particularly when it comes to hot-button issues, and maybe one of the hottest right now is their proposed small business tax. Uh, The government maintains that this is to eliminate tax loopholes for small businesses. Those are those their words, not mine. Uh, Some people take exception to that, suggesting that uh, these are very necessary, uh, not not even loopholes, but strategies used for people to actually put money aside because they don't have things like pensions, etc. It's an interesting discussion, interesting debate. You've heard from the Chamber of Commerce on this. Uh, numbers of uh, chambers of commerce uh, right across the country, uh, commerce rather, have talked about this. Small business groups, the uh, well, uh, there's a myriad of folks that are going right now and throwing red flags and telling the the, the the federal government, back off, don't do this, not now. Let's have that discussion. Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Hi, Marvin. How are you this morning? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Let's uh, let's talk about this. I'd like to be a fly in the wall in the uh, the Liberal Caucus as they were discussing this today, because uh, one of the uh, sidebar issues to this is the fact that a number of uh, MPs, I guess backbench MPs that don't sit in cabinet right now, have received an earful from some of their businesses and their constituents and saying, "Don't do this right now." Is is that going to resonate with the finance minister and the prime minister? Oh, I, I think it definitely will. Remember, the Liberals are facing an election in a couple of years, and they don't want to head into it losing any of that Trudeau mania that they've been using for the last two years. They want to keep positive. Bill, if I can just take you back slightly. July Please. 1st, the, the finance minister announces this and says we we're going to have 75 days of discussion. So uh, he put out three uh, proposals, three proposals. These are three, quote, loopholes that he would like to change. Now, I don't want to turn this into a tax discussion, but I think I can explain a couple of them pretty easily. 
One of them is that it's a, a pretty standard business practice that if I don't need all the cash that I have on hand at the moment, that I put it into an investment. Maybe I'll buy a treasury bill or maybe I'll buy some stocks short term. Uh, here at the university, you'll hear about us winning uh, research dollars. We don't need them all day one, so we invest them, get a little return on them. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly acceptable business practice. But when you have corporations that are especially one-person corporations, say I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer, I have my own practice, am I simply parking extra cash, or is this some vehicle I'm using to generate revenue, and because my business is taxed at a lower rate, then I get it and, and pay less tax on it? We don't want individuals doing that. Uh, a second example of this is that uh, people have created corporations. Again, let's say I'm a doctor or a lawyer, and I list uh, some, some members of my family as co-owners of the company. Members of my family, for instance, like my children or maybe my mother who aren't working, therefore when I declare a dividend, they're going to earn income at a much lower tax rate. We call that income sprinkling, sharing it around other people. Uh, that doesn't seem quite fair to people. Uh, and the third one is to somehow take my income uh, in my uh, corporation, but leave it in there, let it accrue in there, and then at some point declare a capital gain. Why is that important? Well, t capital gains are declared at half the rate as regular income. Now, he's put out these three ideas. Yes, you're right. There's been lots of pushback from people on this. I would not be surprised to see one or two of these fall by the wayside. Uh, there are many people who say, well, look, yeah, I understand you want to get as much revenue as you can. You're running that's, big That's what governments there. do. Yeah, yeah, but you're running big deficits in Ottawa. You need every dollar you can find. And there's a suggestion that these three, quote, loopholes could, if closed, generate somewhere between 250 and 500 million more dollars. Not a lot when you're facing a deficit of $18 billion, but, hey, every little bit helps. So I, I think they'll have this discussion today. They're going to look at the feedback they're getting. Around the middle of October is when they're going to bring forward any legislation to make changes. The conservatives are, of course, uh, rubbing their hands gleefully. This plays right into their community. So I, I think we'll watch this as an interesting game of chess. Uh, will they do something on this? I think the answer is yes, but it probably won't be as much as they first proposed. Here's, here's something I'm trying to get some, some answers to, and I'm finding it very difficult to get information on this. You, you've talked about the fact, and, and the government uses the term loopholes, I, I, and I know that, for instance, the Chambers of Commerce take exception to that. Sure. And so will many small businesses right. who are saying, look, this is our survival method. You know, we, we don't have the same structure that large corporations do. We don't have retirement funds. We don't have... Uh, you know, uh, profit sharing, anything like this, because our profit margins are an awful lot smaller. And a lot of the money that they make, of course, has to be reinvested. So they're saying we need these things because we're not going to be doing this forever, and we have to be concerned about our retirement and our family's welfare at the same time. So, th so there's, this is happening right now, and this is the discussion. But I, I guess the question I'm, I'm trying to get an answer to right now is for the, the government to use the term loophole and say, well, people are using this to their advantage is is this is this misuse if if I can use that phrase rampant because I don't think I don't hear much about this. Mm -hmm. Is it rampant? Uh, no, uh, I would think something like seventy-five to eighty percent of businesses are using these tax uh, uh, statements correctly. I won't call them a loophole either. Build these tax rules quite correctly, but there are a small number, roughly fifteen to twenty percent of businesses that are owned by people who make an awful lot of money. Again, I use that example of doctors and lawyers who have incorporated themselves. They make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and and they're already 
fully maxing out their TFSA, they're fully maxing out their RSP, so they've gone to their accountant, and the accountant has said, well, here's something you can do to shelter more money and, and, and reduce the amount of tax you're paying. Many of the people who are most upset about this, let's say a farmer, for instance, who says, gosh, my income is so low, don't close this on me, they're not really the ones they're targeting here. They're targeting high-earning individuals who created corporations to, to specifically uh, uh, shelter some money and, and not pay as much tax. Nothing illegal with what they're doing. Like any person with wealth, you're going to get good advice from somebody. They've gone to an accountant, and this accountant has said, here's a great way for you to do this. But the question is, is it really fair? And I think this is where the liberals are saying, because remember the whole liberal mantra when they got elected a couple years ago was, let's go after the wealthiest, make them pay their, quote, fair share, uh, so that we can give some cuts to the middle class and to the lower classes. Uh, I think this is part of that philosophy. How much is involved and really, really close that many loopholes? Bill, you and I know that people with money will always get tax advice. You close a loophole here, they'll find another spot over there where they can take advantage of the system and avoid paying some taxes. That's the great glory of being a, a wealthy person. But if you're going to, quote-unquote, go after the rich, and they're not the first government that's talked about doing this, right. is small business really the rich? Well, that's the problem, you know, uh, Bill. You, uh, the average person probably doesn't understand this. I mean, they're not talking about going after Imperial Oil here or anything else, or, no, or uh, no. you know, they're talking about going after uh, small business, uh, mom and pop businesses, family businesses, things like that. Well, that's what it sounds like. Now, what we need to remember is that 99% of businesses are small or medium-sized enterprises, meaning less than 100 employees. If I get rid of those that are between 20 and 100, we're still talking about 96% of businesses in Canada are small businesses. They're not going after all the small businesses. They're going after a relatively small number that earn an awful lot of money, and they're trying to shelter it using taking advantage of this. So the, here's an interesting dilemma for them. How do I close, quote, this loophole for the very wealthy who don't really need it while leaving something in place for the other small business people? So what you might see on these three, people, three proposals is some sort of, say, means testing. In other words, you can shelter, uh, 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 say, an investment within your business up to $100,000, but after that, you're going to have to pay tax like everybody else. I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of means test, because that's the ones they're going after. People who've created corporations, but you and I wouldn't think of them as a small business. I don't mean to harp on that, but doctors and lawyers, I don't think the average person thinks of them as a small business person, but that's what they've done. They've created corporations. They're taking advantage of the tax system to minimize their tax payments. Again, nothing wrong with that, but I'm not sure they're really that mom-and-pop variety store that we're all worried about. No, and again, there are some lawyers that make lots of money and some lawyers that don't make lots of money, And, and uh, but it seems as if everybody's going to be under the same umbrella here without that means test. And, and you know, the other side of that coin is the doctors and lawyers, if we want to get into the professional element of this, I mean, everything they do, they're doing on their own dime. I mean, people seem to think that, you know, when a doctor sets up an office, uh, well, they get their equipment from the government. Or they get you know, No, they have to buy everything in there. They have to pay the staff. They have to pay the rent or if they own the building. They're, they're, they're undertaking considerable cost. And you and I both know that it takes a long time for doctors, lawyers, or any small business, any, any entrepreneur for that matter, to get their head above water and maybe start making money. And now the government's saying, look, we encourage you to do this. We encourage you to invest all your time and money in this. Now we're going to go after you. 
Yeah, and that's a very powerful counter-argument to all this, and I can add fuel to your fire and say, and what are you going to gain at the end of this? You're going to tick off an awful lot of people. You're going to change the entrepreneurial climate, and and for what, three or four hundred million dollars? And now, again, I don't mean to sort of wave my hand and say that small change, but when you're talking about a government budget measured in billions and billions and billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, four or five hundred million isn't all that much. So is this really some fertile soil to plow. Again, I understand where they're coming from philosophically. Of course, take a look at the issue and see if you can maybe tighten some of these restrictions on this. But to eliminate them completely, I just don't see that happening next month. And the other thing about this, too, that just to get back to the idea of a small business individual as well, is, is you know, that their income actually ebbs and flows almost from year to year. I mean, you know, they, they may have a particularly good year and, and things are going great. And, right. and they, so they're going to get nailed. Uh, And that's great that they could put a little bit aside for their future, for their retirement, for whatever the case might be, because you don't know what the next year is going to bring. And they may end up at a loss and they may break even with no money to put into it. So that nest egg that they got from the year before is is there for them. Uh, And so there's some sense of security. Uh, and with small business and, and with entrepreneurs, you don't know what the next year is going to be like. So it just seems as though the government's going to say, well, we don't care. We want our piece of the pie anyway. <laughs> well, in, in fairness, Bill, the, the government also has, and it's available to all of us again, it's called income averaging, which uh, would allow you to average out an extraordinary year against less extraordinary years or vice versa. If you have some bad years, you can average the income that way. Uh, I, I get that, Marvin, but that'll keep, that'll keep you on a level playing field and keep you above water, but it's not going to give you that nest egg that everyone wants for their, for their retirement. Right. You know, we all know that even doctors and lawyers and, and entrepreneurs and mom and pop shops and family businesses businesses, uh, there's no pension plan there unless it's a, a larger business. Uh, so, so they're kind of on their own. And those are the same people that are going to say, well, what happens when I finally give up and retire? Uh, where do I go? Where's my income going to come from? It's a good question. Well, yes. But again, Bill, remember, those nice people have advantages like the TFSA and the RRSP. Uh, you know, I can only put $500 into an RRSP because at the university we have a very rich pension plan. But today you can put $20,000 a year aside into, into RRSPs. You can put another $5,500 aside into TFSAs. You know, those people who can max that out and then still need space, we're again talking fairly well-to-do individuals. That's well beyond most small businesses' ability to, to save money. So, I, again, I, I don't want us to confuse that struggling mom-and-pop store or restaurant with some individuals. And, again, there's 15 to 20 percent of them who run businesses that are very, very profitable. Maybe it ebbs and flows a little bit, but at that end of the scale, they are socking away a lot of money, and one can look at it and say, wait a minute, why is your mother on the payroll? Why is your five-year-old son on the payroll? You're just doing this to avoid paying some of your taxes. We've got to get that sense of fairness also balanced against that need to survive those ebbs and flows. Exactly, and I don't disagree with that at all. But you know, it just seems that when the government hears about stuff like this, and sometimes it's anecdotal, they decide with a wide sweeping brush to say, okay, we're going to change that instead of simply going after the people that are abusing the system. It seems to me as if uh, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head, Marvin, that the government needs to do here is say, we need to find some middle ground here that's going to appease some people at the same time. But when I talk to the Chambers of Commerce about this over the last number of weeks, I don't get the sense there's any discussion going on. I'd like to think the government's still open to that. 
Yeah, my, my experience with government, maybe, Bill, is a little different than yours. You often float a trial balloon that you want to have shot down to then float a balloon that you don't want to have shot down. In other words, let me f- float an extreme position. Oh, my gosh, everyone gets all upset at that. So when I bring out a much more middle-of-the-ground, middle-of-the-road proposal, people go, oh, well, thank God you listened, and sure, we can live with that. Whereas if that had been my starting position, pe- people would have been all upset at that. So Mr. Morneau in particular, he's a pretty sharp character. I think he's put this out specifically to do what you and I are doing, cause discussion, uh, cause maybe a little uproar, and then with what he actually presents in in October, I think people say, ah, good, we dodged a bullet there. Well, <laughs> if he's trying to motivate a conversation, he certainly got that, and he certainly heard back from his his caucus about this as MPs, because they certainly heard from all the, the small businesses in their communities right now. Uh, so he's got people going about this right now, so they, they, they look like the guys on the white horse now if they come charging in and say, you know what, we, we're going to change this. But remember, this is also a government that's got its own credibility problems. This was the government that was going to change first past the post, change the electoral reform. Oh, we can't do that. Oh, we're only going to run a small deficit. Oh, my gosh, we're running a bigger deficit. Oh, we're going to spend all this money on infrastructure, but we really haven't spent very much money so far. You know, and now we're into NAFTA negotiations. They, they would actually love something that would almost bright and shiny, if you will, that distracts us over here, gets us all arguing about this. So we ignore some of their other problems on other fronts. Well, we'll see what they say in Kelowna today. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the Dragoon School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.